Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Morten Nielsen, social anthropologist, senior researcher at the National Museum of Denmark and one of the speakers at the Why the World is Anthropology conference happening in Oslo on October 25th on the theme of sustaining cities. Morten explores the topic he will cover at the conference, which is urban orders, when the city models itself. He gives examples from his work of how sustainable urban design processes arise from the meshwork of social life in cities. He asks us to reflect on questions such as how might people's everyday urban practices be converted into viable resources for designing sustainable cities? What would it take for urban planning to become a medium of translation of the lived city into the planned city? What new models of urban sustainability might be discovered by taking seriously the force of urbanites' concerted actions? And just a quick mention before going into the episode, we've been experimenting here at The Human Show with a new podcasting platform called Zencaster, and we might hear in one or two places an overlap between my voice and Morten's, and I apologize in advance for that. We have did a trial run with that Zencaster and it didn't really proved to be um, better than what we use right now. But uh, for this episode, we apologize for any interference you might hear coming from that. Again, we hope you enjoy it. Hi, friends. We are here today with Martin, um, anthropologist and senior researcher at the National Museum of Denmark, am I saying it correctly or no? That's perfect. That's absolutely fine. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's been a long day, Martin. So um, I, I think, I think, yeah. Um, and also, you are one of the speakers at the um, Why the World is Anthropology conference happening in Oslo this month. Yes, and I'm so excited to be part of it. I mean, I think it's an excellent idea, and and the whole uh, you know approach to it is so interesting, and you know it, it it's very timely, as you might know. Yeah. We just had the C40 meeting in in uh, mm -hmm. Copenhagen, so I mean, so 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 this this makes a a, a nice uh, you know uh, ending to it, or, or a continuation of what was already going on there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So just before we dive into your particular topic at the conference, maybe you can tell me and our listeners a little bit about your own personal path with anthropology. Sure. Uh, so I'm a social anthropologist and uh, I'm trained in, uh, in anthropology from the Copenhagen University in Denmark. Uh, since my kind of early years, I've been focusing on urban management and urban planning in, you know, what is usually called the Global South. I've been working in Latin America, in Brazil, in the northeast of uh, Brazil, in Pernambuco, mm -hmm. the capital of Pernambuco called Recife. Then I moved to Sub-Saharan Africa, where I have uh, worked in Mozambique, in the capital Maputo, since 2004. And uh, until today, and basically, uh, what I what I look most at in uh, and what I'm most interested in in in, in, in these urban um, settings is uh, you could say urban planning, informal urban planning, uh, house building, housing uh, aesthetics, and the and you could say on a 
more general level, you know, access to land, land rights, and urban citizenship. Mm. Uh, on you know, and then coming out of that, and maybe it's too <laughs> complex even for myself to really know yeah. how that ended up. But but I've been looking also at different forms of uh, you know the, the the relationship between time and materiality and that is something that uh, i have been uh, writing quite a lot about which basically means you know that let's say when people build houses that is also a way for them to orient themselves in time to create pasts futures and presents and oftentimes the very act of building houses mm. that is a way to ground themselves also in time yeah that was that was something that uh, was not initially part of my research but it quickly uh, became part of it because that was what you know my interlocutors in the different sites uh, were focusing on yeah and then because of my interest in time, then I have been looking a lot of, then I've been uh, doing, you know, parallel research projects about uh, different kinds of creativity, about digression as a particular form of temporal orientation and other kinds of, you could say, more non-linear forms of temporal orientations. All of this is a kind of springs from my overall Focus, which is uh, urban management, urban development in the global south, focusing in particular on Latin America, Brazil, and Sub-Saharan mm. Africa, uh, Mozambique. Yeah, so it's like um, building, building and dwelling, and all those things around it, right? Absolutely, and uh, you know what you find, you know, of course, is that. Um, you know, and, and of course, that's not in any way, you know, a rocket science, you know, but but that, uh, you know, building and 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 is, of course, also a way, you know, building houses in a, is, in a sense, also of a way of, in a sense, building your yourself. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, that, that you, that you, um, that you get a position from which to speak and act hmm. in the urban environment through the house yeah and uh, but, but but that this process you know between you could say social life and the built environment that's hyper complex yeah and depending on the particulars of the situation it 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 it, uh, it, it creates different kinds of configurations of let's say social of the social of the political of the economic and we can go into that uh, 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 later on but 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 as you also say i mean my overall focus is on, uh, you know, uh, house building, dwelling, and and urban uh, development. And you know, one of the one, one of the interesting things is, uh, you know, in, in the in the current situation that we are in, is of course that there is so much focus on, you could say, urban um, uh, sustainability, uh, the the way in, in which also that 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 we need. A more kind of focused form of urban participation, right? But in order to achieve that, we really need to know what's actually going on and the ways in which that the urbanites themselves they orient themselves in time and space in in the cities. You know, it, it it's simply not enough to just, in a sense, ask for more participation. We need to know what's going on. Yeah, and it also redefines, or or maybe it it contextualizes the type of complexity of relationship that we build with place, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. yeah. 
I lived in um, I lived in New Zealand before coming back to the Netherlands, and I I really was fascinating there to see you know the relationship between time and place and the individual within the Maori community. Because it really has this element uh, of genealogy almost, you know, like they say, like the presence is alive through our, uh, our, so both our ancestors and our future are present in, in the moment, in yourself, in the space that you dwell in. So it was very interesting to, even the type of use of, of um, how do you call that in grammar, you know, like the tenses that you use when mm-hmm. you speak about things. I found it at the beginning very confusing because they have this fluidity mm-hmm. of talking about time and ancestry <laughs> uh, that made it quite difficult to understand what they're talking about in the moment. Uh, but it's, I find it very fascinating, but I think I'm derailing from the topic of, of, of today's <laughs> no, conversation. No, no, absolutely. I mean, absolutely not, because I think that what you're pointing to, which is a very kind of, uh, you know, uh, important part of uh, what you could say uh, 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 building houses is all about is that there is no fixed um, uh, uh, a relationship between the physical landscape and the social and cultural qualities that you invested with. Mm. So you know, like you you talked about the the the, the different tenses, right? So the, the 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 area that I work in. Most of my time, which is in uh, Mozambique, uh, Maputo, where they speak a shang- and in this particular part of Mozambique, they speak two Bantu languages, Ronga and Shangan, right? Mm-hmm. And and they both have a, a, um, a way of talking about the future that is, you know, usually you would have this open-ended uh, uh, form, which we also know in English as the uh, subjunctive, uh-huh. you know, if I were, yeah. uh, you know, if I were to build, right? Yeah. But, but what is so interesting in, in Shangana and, and Ronga is that you have a form where you can, um, where you can formulate it as if, as if you're talking with absolute certainty. So you'll say, uh, you know, th- uh, this house will be finished in four years, right? Mm. But at the, but at the same time, you can ever so subtly, sub- with, with, with a high degree of uh, subtlety, uh, you know, um, imply that it is that it might never happen. <laughs> so it is. So, so it is not a subjunctive. It is not like it, it, it's not a, an imaginary or kind of wishing for. It is absolutely certain. But at the same time, you can also kind of imply that that it is never going to happen. And one of the ways in which, and this is where my research actually started out, right? Mm. Uh, one of the ways in which I realized this was that. You know, many of my interlocutors on the living on the outskirts of Maputo, they would commence building houses which they themselves acknowledge that they would never be able to complete, right? So that they would they they would build foundations for they would buy cement for houses, cement houses, free or four room houses, and they were absolutely convinced that this is a house that they were that, that they would never in their lifetime be able to complete because of the you know financial and social uh, conditions that they were living under right so obviously the, here my question was that what kind of temporal frame is that mm. and and what what is the orientation uh, that guides them towards these particular futures which they themselves acknowledged as having already collapsed right 
that was insanely interesting to me. And when I then discovered that it actually had a tense, you, mm-hmm. know, uh, you know, in the language, yeah. that's that's where you can really get at some of those issues that that, that you are mentioning yeah, now. Yeah. You know, in terms of the, you, you would say the cosmology of space. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, this is so fascinating. But uh, tell yeah. me, is this the topic that you will be speaking to at the conference, or um, is there another um, uh, another argument that you would like to make? Well, I mean. Let me first say again, you know, that that I'm extremely excited to be part of this uh, conference, and not just because of 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 the conference, which I think is wonderful, but it's because of the conference as it comes right yeah, now. Yeah, I don't think that there has been a, a moment in at least my kind of. Uh, adult life <laughs> where I think that, you know, as an anthropologist, where I think that those questions that the conference raises about first, you know, basically, you know, why are we in the business of anthropology? And secondly, how can we use that as a vehicle for creating more sustainable uh, cities? That's, that's, uh, that, that's, that, that, that's, I think the most important thing, at least for an urban anthropologist, that's like mm-hmm. that, right? So what I want to focus on with my talk is basically, um, you could say, how you can uh, use or harness some of the social and cultural and technological resources at play amongst urban residents as a vehicle for actually thinking up better and more sustainable cities. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that um usually and even you could say within the framework of uh, new political agendas like the UN's sustainable development uh, uh, you know uh, 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 agenda mm-hmm. right there is still this kind of um, expectancy that that planning is something you know that that still in a sense comes from outside That's one thing. And then the the second part is that we, in a sense, know what we talk about when we say civic participation or citizen involvement or or, or the involvement of of citizens, right? Uh, So you have two components which which I want to engage with within the framework of, uh, you know, how to create uh, sustainable cities. One is the way that we approach uh, uh, planning. And the, the the second one, which is within this framework of planning, how do we think about um, mm. uh, civic uh, participation? The reason why I want to do that, you know, ties in with the kind of research that I have been doing for you know like fifteen or sixteen years. And I think that in order to contextualize that, let, let me just tell you just two two or three things about the area that I work in in uh, Maputo, mm. right? So the area where I work in uh, is on the outskirts of Maputo, and it is a neighborhood that, uh, in a sense, uh, emerged after the flooding that that hit that area in 99 and 2000. Uh, the, The Maputo municipality chose to resettle all the flooding victims in one neighborhood on the outskirts of the city and they in a sense said to the to the uh, to, to to the outside world to the international donor organizations uh, to the civil society organizations they said we will use this opportunity to to build what they called a model neighborhood 
you know, a Bayro Modelo in Portuguese. We want to show to the world that for all these residents, we can build something that is ideal, that's perfect for our residents, right? Uh, can I ask a question? What is the yeah. temporality or what's the frame of temporality that they're, they're looking for? Like what type of residents and who are they actually building for? Mm. So in the beginning, there were only a they had expected uh, the, 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 the total number of flooding victims to be no more than 100 families, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but very soon, because of new uh, of other urban you know residents realizing that there was pretty easy access to 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 land in this neighborhood that had now been destined as you know um, as area for for, for the uh, 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 flooding victims, the area rapidly grew so that within five years you had a, a population of almost. Uh, uh, 40,000 mm -hmm. residents, which means that obviously most of these, they are not uh, uh, flooding victims at all, but they were uh, people who, in a sense, drew advantage of the fact that you had an area that was growing in terms of infrastructure and access to basic um, uh, services and so forth. The point is here that as soon as the international donor uh, organizations realized that people were no longer dying, essentially, they withdrew, mm -hmm. right? So that so that the support that the government had expected, for, which was necessary for them to to build this model neighborhood, was no longer there. What was there now was just the ideal, the vision that had been implanted about doing the model neighborhood. But there was no resources, and there were lots of newcomers coming to the area who basically wanted access to land, even if that meant doing it in uh, through informal channels, right? So what happened over time was that whereas the Mozambican state, which is, of course, one of the poorest in the world, was incapable of creating or building the model neighborhood, the residents did it themselves. What happened was that during, you know, through a lot of informal negotiations, you know, uh, uh, you know land surveyors, architects being bought off, newcomers... Um, got access to land and in the attempt to in a sense avoid being kicked out or being removed with force by the state they essentially built what they thought the model neighborhood could look mm -hmm. like so you, you can imagine kind of an, a negotiation going on you know where a newcomer comes into the area and and he said well i want to build a house here and i kind of know that it might not be 100 legal how do i do this i get an architect to draft uh, you know, a, a plan for my house that looks legal, <laughs> but it is not legal. And, and, then, and then what happened was that when all the technicians from the municipality, you know, over time came to inspect the area, you know, basically what they said was like, okay, so this looks like something that we could have built. We didn't build it, but we could have. So let's just leave it here. Now, this whole history that I'm telling you now is basically what I spent an hour, a year of my PhD research finding out. Because what what really what, what I struggled to understand was why this area looked so mm -hmm. formalized. You know, I you know what had allowed it to get this kind mm -hmm. of ordering 
you know, whereas it, 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 it was basically as informal as any other informal area that you know from a lot of, you know, African uh, urban environments, right? And, and, and I was actually running around, the, you know, on the municipality and all kinds of state in institutions trying to find the blueprints for the area that would document how yeah. this order had uh, emerged. Until it dawned on me at the end, you know, uh, uh, you know, after like half a year, that there was no such plan. This was a, a lot of kind of overlapping compromises being done by uh, by newcomers wanting access to land, by uh, you know uh, state technicians realizing that they did not have the resources to implement any kind of formal ordering, and uh, and 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 uh, you could say lurking, or or, or or you know you know being. On the, on the basis of all this as an undercurrent was this idea of the model neighborhood that was there all along, right? So what this tells me is there was in this neighborhood a high, you know, a, a, a very particular uh, capacity for creating an order that actually worked. It is not formal. It is not even legal. But through this particular kind of urban aesthetics that that, that grew from, from within these processes of getting access to land, of house building, you know, all this kind of stuff, you, you have this new kind of regularity that has happened without the use of force and without any kind of coordinated mm. planning going on, right? So this is a very long-winded way of coming back to the focus of my talk, which basically is to, to use um, these kinds of insights to try to say, well, if that happens in Maputo, maybe it happens elsewhere as well. And if we want to create more sustainable cities, rather than starting with preconceived notions of what urban planning is, rather than starting with preconceived notions of what civic participation is, let's try to understand ethnographically what kinds of ordering mechanisms are already there and then convert them into more viable resources for making sustainable uh, cities. Yeah, this is fascinating. Um, I wonder if there aren't any kind of particular cultural elements that underpin or kind of uh, host or facilitate what happened there and, and how translatable those, those are to other environments. Meaning that particular social order or nah, other other type of cultural elements. Oh, uh, I mean that that that's uh, of course a uh, you know a very important and, and crucial question. And of course there are. You could say, for instance, that some of the stuff that you were mentioning before, you could say in terms of the way that 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 residents orient themselves cosmologically also which means that you know when you start to build a house of course then you uh, uh, as we talked about mm -hmm. earlier you also build yourself which means that you also in a sense orient yourself in terms of your own history in terms of your own ancestors in terms of your um, you know the, the the particular genealogy that you have uh, in a sense created uh, through your life and through the lives of the of your ancestors right and 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 in this particular situation that goes into you could say the strength of creating 
of of building houses in particular way you know the the and 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 we can go into that yeah. and i've documented you know let, let's say how the how the, the the plot size and and the aesthetics of the house they also reverberate with the cosmological understandings of the residents but the larger point that you're pointing to i think is that Uh, is you know what happens the moment that you want to in a sense lift this analytical mm-hmm. idea out of Maputo and put it elsewhere? That's of course the the key issue. And uh, the way that I have done that is that um, you know basically after finishing my work in Maputo for for a, f- a few years I s- continued thinking about whether it would actually be possible to think about to 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 do this elsewhere uh, because uh, you, you know maybe the as you also say that that, that the particulars of this situation are simply so specific that it, that also the conceptual framing of it is tied to maputo right so what i did was that i uh, set up a, an interdisciplinary research network that was actually called urban orders research network and together with a with a research collective composed by engineers, architects, historians, anthropologists, uh, uh, geographers, we traveled uh, around four what we have called collaborator cities. We started in the city of Aarhus, which is the second largest city in Denmark. We then traveled to Berlin in Germany, We then traveled to Johannesburg in South Africa, and in the last uh, city we were in New Orleans in the in Louisiana in the US in the US, and in all of these four places we did the same thing. We we identified a particular case, a study of a particular uh, urban site, a locality, and then we with this co- collective of researchers, which were. Uh, you know, which were composed by researchers from these four, you could say, collaborator cities. We over time experimentally, heuristically developed a conceptual framework. F- you know, for it, doing these kinds of studies, not just in one particular site, but across different cultural contexts, right? And and, and what we basically found was that it is not just possible but it is i think it is one of the most exciting approaches to thinking about urban development and urban sustainability mm-hmm. that i have been part of you know uh, and maybe i should just do a bit of uh, advertising here and say that you can find on our website urban orders research center uro.au.dk uro.au.dk you can find reports from all four um, case studies that, that we have done. And in these reports, we also outlined the methodology for doing so across different... Nice. Countries. That's super interesting. It, 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 I really... For me, like I'm not, I'm not, um, uh, I'm not as expert in this field as you are, but it, it really makes me think that it's almost as a, a redefinition of the type of relationship that we build with space, or maybe not. Maybe there's a certain universalism underpinning this, this, uh, this uh, relationship between us as individuals and the spaces that we build and the process of creating them. Uh, I don't know if there is, but it, it really makes me think. I mean, I also lived in Brazil for two years, um, and combining with New Zealand, I can really kind of bring it back to now being back to Europe um, into how different 
the nature of the explicit relationship that we have with space is. But maybe there's an implicitness to it that, that I'm not really sensing, but that it's still here, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, uh, I think that what you're talking about is, is a very interesting t kind of comparative move, almost, right? Uh, also, because I mean, in in some of these contexts that you are mentioning, for instance, in uh, uh, Brazil, obviously, uh, within many uh, uh, urban environments in Brazil, yeah. you have yeah. almost these kind of enclaves mm -hmm. thing going on, right? Where you can have different kinds of modalities of the city, different kinds of configurations of what constitutes the city as, 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 you know, being side by side without one, you know, having anything to do with the other one. Right. And, and I mean, in Recife, you know, the, the capital of Pernambuco, which is where I worked, uh, for instance, right. Then you would have these middle-class areas side by side with some of the poorer urban areas, you know, where, where, you know, you would have open sewage systems going on and you would have, uh, you know, you know, houses on stilts, uh, you know, being built, uh, you know, uh, you know, over the uh, riverbed. Um, and, and in this particular area, in order to understand kind of the, the, the ways in which these collective orient themselves and the, you would say the um, the resources that you would need to activate in in this particular area to do what I did in in uh, in, in Maputo to, to, uh, for instance you would need to take account of the mm -hmm. fact that the city is is enclave based so 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 that the residents orient themselves in terms of these enclaves now what is interesting and, and and you then mentioned you know taking this idea back to Denmark uh, to, to, sorry to Europe is that what one of the my last uh, you know studies of this that I'm doing right now in Denmark mm -hmm. is that you actually have the same situation. So whereas you, you can find some uh, urban areas, like you, you, you find it in South Africa, where, where you have the monumentally built uh, physical enclaves where you have, you know, that, that's separated by walls. In Recife or in many places in, in uh, Brazil, you still have, you would say, the unwalled separations, but where, where you still orient yourself in terms of segregated enclaves, right? Now, in Denmark, you have, uh, we are roughly 6 million Danes, right? And you have around 1 million Danes living in estate housings, which is not social housing, but it is a kind of, you know, wh where you want what the Danes, what, you know, uh, politically in Denmark is called uh, mixed mixed um, mixed housing, which is that you want people from different economic uh, backgrounds to um, to to um, live in the same um, uh, 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 urban spaces, right? Now, what's interesting is that 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 in many of these places they actually um, uh, you know orient themselves in the cities in an enclave-like way. So rather than thinking of the, the the city as one big system, so to speak, they they see it as a cluster of 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 you could say localized enclaves which orient themselves inwardly rather than outwardly. Right. So some of these comparisons, which you would usually refrain by doing, the moment that you, in a sense, let's say, start from Brazil, 
move to Denmark, start from Mozambique, move to Berlin. Then you suddenly have some really, really interesting comparisons going on where you can actually move the conceptual framework around in a much more dynamic way than if you were simply starting with a with a you know predefined understanding of what urban management and urban, and and yeah, civic participation. I, I think it's a it's a it's a really it's a really fascinating topic, and I wonder, uh, Morten, for those of our listeners that are actually going to um, attend the conference, and uh, do you have any kind of parting thoughts or things that you want to leave them to reflect on um, in preparation for the talk, or or many uh, something else? Mm, well, I mean, I think that um, I mean the, the, you say that that the overall framing of this conference, which is um, why the world needs anthropologists, right? And I think that we should actually start, you know, to 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 think about that sentence not with an exclamation mark, but with a question. You know, why does the world need anthropologists, right? And uh, and one of the reasons why I think that the world needs anthropologists, especially when we think about how to uh, you know achieve urban sustainability, is precisely because you could say we explore. Uh, those social cultural dynamics uh, that that can become resources for 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 you know new tools of uh, uh, establishing sustainable cities, right? So so we are not just in the business, so to speak, to to map out cultural complexity. I think that at this day and age, with the acuteness of those uh, challenges that we are facing. Uh, we need to, to 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 put our discipline to the task of you know uh, using of using our insights to um, to to uh, create better tools for thinking through new ways of making sustainable uh, cities. Thank you again for being with us Absolutely. today. Absolutely, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.